Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is indeed time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, Malaysia moving closer to dictatorship. I'll be speaking to a Malaysian journalist who's actually in Kuala Lumpur at this moment. International Conference on Human Rights in the Philippines, a report backed by Peter Murphy. Calling on the UN to act now on Western Sahara with Kate Lewis. And prisoning in Australia with prison activist Shavendra Singh. But first, it's Mr Kevin Healy and I'm not quite sure what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Lister, when the government went into training for the Olympic diving, executing a perfect naught for a triple backflip with parking it belly whack over the institutional abuse of terra nullius children, ticking off with the Minister for White Terra Nullius Paternalism, Nigel Skull on Empty, boasting he hadn't bothered to watch the torture tapes, didn't think they were all that important, certainly not as important for a very busy man who had more pressing business to attend to like wine and dine at an upmarket restaurant. Triple backflip completed with a spectacular lack of grace and composure, seeing big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bulls, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Con Missioner appointment, unappoint himself due to possibly perceived conflicts of interest like he had overseen much of the problem and slotted several of the Con Missioner's subjects. So what seemed a great idea, Malcolm, Malcolm, why did you decide to hold a Royal Con mission? Well, its main advantage is it, it saves doing anything, but, but, but it's so expensive. When it comes to doing nothing, it's worth every cent. And, and why have you involved the perpetrators in the Con mission into themselves but not consulted the victims? The accused have rights. Th- then why didn't you involve the evil unions in the Smash the Union's Kanga mission? The guilty have no rights. What seemed a great idea for about two and a half minutes, give or take, landed belly first and a new Her Honour had to be found and the victims were finally represented by Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gooder, leading to the Solidarity of the Week Award to Malcolm's Terranilius advisor, Downer Warren Mundunamin who regretted the resignation, saying that Terra Nullius, direct quote listener, bullying mob out there are not going to be happy unless they get their way. I question whether Indigenous groups will be happy with any appointment. Well, Downer Warren, former Socialist Party National President, now caring business class party Terra Nullius advisor, all things to all white men, we can guarantee you one appointment they're not happy with. Or with which, but you know. Given the best way to prevent kids being abused in prison is to make sure they don't land there, address the issues that send them there, I'm looking for that not insignificant point in the terms of reference drawn up by our esteemed Attorney General giant legal mind George Brandy's brain. Not there, but must be here somewhere. Look, I'll find it eventually, but top marks to George for politico-legal doublespeak, telling us this was, before the triple backflip, belly whack, he had talked to Mick Gooder about the issue and 
Well, he had. He, he had returned a call from Mick Gooder saying he was returning the call. So technically, he talked to him. Politico legal doublespeak. He has adopted similar doublespeak for an issue I suspect will see the proverbial hitting the fan when Parliament gets round to sitting again, involving George issuing a directive that all inquiries to the Solicitor General and Eminent Silk have to go through him. That's George. Again, he told Parliament he had, quote, consulted the Solicitor General about undermining his authority, but the Solicitor General has a diametrically opposite version of the same events, or George's definition of consult, with suggestions poor George may have misled Parliament. Watch this space on that one. And as the government was dragged gasping for air from the diving pool, it announced it would concentrate on the rowing. Highlighted by tossing former team captain Little Kebby Rod for the workers overboard into stop, stop, language warning, if you're sensitive, if dear little children are present, perhaps leave the room now. Overboard into the turd-ridden pollution, which kind of sums them all up. And although their motive was simply small-minded petty politics, we have to concede they've done the UN of the US of the UN of the world a big favour, bringing us to an article in this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review that a majority of Cabinet wanted to support Little Kebby, but were overruled by Malcolm and his hayseed and sheepshit sidekick Barnacle, that poor minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, had been kept in the dark about Malcolm telling Little Kebby to back off. Anyway, the point is, it was obviously a leak from Cabinet. And we know governments are in deep, deep when Cabinet starts bringing more leaks than a kitchen colander. Kitchen Cabinet, maybe, but this one set some sort of record, starting to leak before the final votes have even been counted. Happy three years or however long it takes, Malcolm. Hillary over there in the US op and that indigenous chief supremo up there in northern true blue Aussie displayed that great art of politics when difficult, uncomfortable little facts come to the surface like the child abuse and the leaked emails showing the Democratic Party had been a, a touch undemocratic dealing with Hillary's opponent. Ignore the evidence, act as if it doesn't exist and portray yourself as the hapless victim and blame everyone but yourself. Apparently the Russians and Donald Trample the poor were responsible for the child mistreatment and former Socialist Party Big Supremos Little Kebby Rod for the Workers and Julia Gaulinghard were the evil forces behind undermining poor Bernie or, or the other way round, whatever, doesn't matter, just blame someone. Last week, we, we referred to that wise decision by his honour that sadly having to let workers go to replace them with near-slave labour was legal, and taking action to prevent being replaced with near-slave labour was illegal, unprotected, as his honour protected the caring employer, Chev Wrong to Pay Workers, told it, yes, go ahead and sue the evil union for 10 mil. Well, despite the efforts of great men like his honour, the lawlessness of evil unions becomes more and more evil and more and more lawless by the day. As an evil CFMEU official on the very same Barrow Island gorging the profits project has been charged with threatening non-union workers by, sit down listener, it's hard to imagine a crime more heinous, by addressing about 60 workers, 
and saying the most hurtful things about those who refused to join the union and even more hurtful things about those who had resigned from the union the very day after the union won them improved pay and conditions. If you don't effing like it, eff off somewhere else, he told them. Can we imagine anything more criminal, more evil? We can bet the couth, sophisticated men and women in suits in the boardrooms never use that sort of language. The poor construction jackboots authority's chief inquisitor, Nigel Hands kiss, Hedge kissed the bosses, had no choice but to lay charges. For his honour and he know we must respect the inalienable right of workers not to join a union, not to associate with evil. Franked, to use a good business term, by the true Blue competition and consumer commission forced to raid the same evil union's Canberra office last Tuesday over price-fixing allegations raised in the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Smash the Union's Kanga mission. Apparently the union was attempting to extract pay for its members from the caring employers. Look, this evil is so great. Surely the time has come to declare unions illegal. Get this country back on the right foot. Restore a bit of equilibrium to society. Allow caring employers and lazy avaricious workers to negotiate win-win agreements without outside interference. Or better still, get rid of workers altogether. Given union or non-union, they are a continual problem for poor caring employers. Let the caring employers do the work themselves. There, problem solved. Like that poor caring employer whom the unfair work ombudsman discovered had been inadvertently underpaying fruit-picking backpackers and has now discovered the same caring employer is again inadvertently underpaying backpackers, showing just how difficult it must be for poor caring employers to comprehend the maze that is the award system, industrial relations. Better to get out there and pick and pack all that fruit themselves or himself or herself. As we keep saying, thank goodness caring employers never inadvertently overpay workers. Showing just how resilient caring employers are, despite all these problems, the latest social research shows the rich are getting richer. So despite the evil unions, the greatest little economic order of them all is achieving what it must achieve to lift the indigent out of poverty, which is the sole reason, the sole raison d'etre for the economic order. The rich getting richer, just a necessary unavoidable side effect. Finally, as Vic roads everywhere chop down a century-old tree using the as usual to remove caring protesters because chopping down the tree is the law, and Vic Road said, we would not remove the tree if there was an acceptable alternative option. And I reckon we could probably think of an acceptable alternative option. It reminds me of that true story, a US of tourist in a plane climbing above a German city over a centuries-old cathedral next to a freeway commenting, how stupid, why would you build a cathedral right next to a motorway? <laughs> good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And back again here at 3CR tomorrow, bushy-tailed. I don't know about on time, but time for a cup of tea for City Limits, which starts at 9 o'clock and finishes at 10. That's Mr Kevin Healy. The annual World Goa Day is at the Springvale City Hall on Saturday, August the 6th. It's a celebration of culture and music, including a buffet of authentic Goan dishes. 
There will be performances, dances and other activities all starting from 7pm. Cost is $45 and $22 for children between 5 and 10 years. World Goa Day, Saturday, August 6th at the Springvale City Hall. For more information, call Oscar on 0404 848 345. That's 0404 848 345. A 3CR supporter. To some it would appear that the noose is tightening on the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak as six countries, including the US, Singapore and Switzerland, investigate the multi-billion dollar embezzlement scandals engulfing the current government. The US State Department has seized more than $1.36 billion in assets allegedly stolen from the state investment fund known as 1MDB. This filing has re-energised calls in Malaysia for Najib's removal and prosecution. But there is also increasing fear in Malaysia that he could stage a coup as the pressure mounts on him. Earlier today, I spoke with Malaysian journalist Keon Wong in Kuala Lumpur and I asked him to describe the mood of the people he's been talking to about the current situation. I don't know whether it's so much uh, of fear as a bit of despair and a bit of resignation that Malaysia has, in a way, been sunk this low after, in some ways, the highs of its rapid industrialization and its burgeoning building of a middle class that was a sort of a signatory measure of what Malaysia has represented in Southeast Asia as one of the wealthiest, most prosperous and successful societies and economies in Southeast Asia over the last 20 years. And now all of that threatens to be crashed by this uh, multi-billion dollar alleged scandal that centres around the Prime Minister. And how is that despair manifesting itself? Some of it, of course, goes into maybe one could argue very easy cynicism of uh, resignation, of opting out. Of course, there are huge numbers joining the so-called brain drain of uh, qualified, educated Malaysians who choose to migrate to, for instance, Australia, which is very popular, but also to Singapore, where there are well over half a million educated, mostly college-educated Malaysians who live and work there. Basically, skill sets uh, which are required uh, to build. I don't know whether it's so much uh, of fear as a bit of despair and a bit of resignation that Malaysia has, in a way, been sunk this low after, in some ways, the highs of its rapid industrialization and its burgeoning building of a middle class that was a sort of a signatory measure of what Malaysia has represented in Southeast Asia as one of the wealthiest, most prosperous and successful societies and economies in Southeast Asia over the last 20 years. And now all of that threatens to be crashed by this uh, multi-billion dollar alleged scandal that centres around the Prime Minister. And how is that despair manifesting itself? Some of it, of course, goes into maybe one could argue very easy cynicism of uh, resignation, of opting out. Of course, there are huge numbers joining the so-called brain drain of uh, 
qualified, educated Malaysians who choose to migrate to, for instance, Australia, which is very popular, but also to Singapore, where there are well over half a million educated, mostly college-educated Malaysians who live and work there. Basically, skill sets uh, which are required uh, to build. I don't know whether it's so much uh, of fear as a bit of despair and a bit of resignation that Malaysia has, in a way, been sunk this low after, in some ways, the highs of its rapid industrialization and its burgeoning building of a middle class that was a sort of a signatory measure of what Malaysia has represented in Southeast Asia as one of the wealthiest, most prosperous and successful societies and economies in Southeast Asia over the last 20 years. And now all of that threatens to be crashed by this uh, multi-billion dollar alleged scandal that centres around the Prime Minister. And how is that despair manifesting itself? Some of it, of course, goes into maybe one could argue very easy cynicism of uh, resignation, of opting out. Of course, there are huge numbers joining the so-called brain drain of uh, qualified, educated Malaysians who choose to migrate to, for instance, Australia, which is very popular, but also to Singapore, where there are well over half a million educated, mostly college-educated Malaysians who live and work there. And what impact will that drain have on the economy of the and the society of Malaysia? I think a lot of uh, medium to long-term impacts, which are not positive. Malaysia has struggled in many ways to get ahead to transform its economy from what has roughly been an economy driven by a resources boom, something not unfamiliar, I guess, to Australians as well. But in Malaysia's case, it's been driven both by the huge oil price spikes of recent years and the commodities boom of palm oil, uh, which Malaysia is uh, a top three world producer. But all of that has sort of um, come out a bit flat. And, you know, the backdrop of all of this is, of course, um, the 1MDB scandal, 1MDB being the sovereign wealth fund, which allegedly has been linked to huge several billion US dollar losses of money going missing and money that allegedly uh, has turned up in about a billion dollars has turned up uh, in the private bank accounts of the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who of course um, has uh, been linked and huge amounts of speculation over the past 10 days to United States, the Department of Justice did a big media conference that included the U.S. Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, as well as uh, senior members of the FBI uh, talking about their huge kleptocracy investigation, which uh, has allegedly found up to uh, at least $3.5 billion U.S. dollars worth of um, allegedly money laundered uh, properties and uh, other goods, including Monet paintings, uh, even gambling debts, the Americans are going to seize because of these alleged um, kleptocracy uh, issues, which are, again, centred around the Prime Minister. And, of course, there's another five countries involved with this as well. 
If the investigations continue in those countries, are they likely to find similar investments in their country? There seems to be, yeah, several ongoing investigations. Um, Singapore moved in April, for instance, to close down a branch of a Swiss bank because of these alleged money laundering trails of money that uh, shouldn't have found their ways through what is supposed to be the squeaky clean uh, banking system of Singapore. The reason that the American Department of Justice has moved on these uh, several billion dollars worth of uh, money that's supposedly missing is because um, they are using laws that came in uh, in the wake of 911 against uh, money laundering. And they have allegedly found lots of this uh, money from Malaysia being spent uh, buying up luxury apartments and property in New York to Monet paintings to uh, the funding, uh, financing of uh, the Hollywood blockbuster, The Wolf of Wall Street, which the prime minister's stepson is uh, named as a producer. A lot of this money has allegedly been squandered on those sorts of things. And the Americans are seizing all of that uh, as they continue into their investigation about all this money uh, going through their system, doing allegedly illegal things. So seizing it means that they're going to sell them and repatriate that money back to Malaysia? That's what the DOJ said they will do eventually. Of course, um, what uh, Malaysians here cynically view is that, well, what would the point of that be if this current government under this prime minister remains in place? (laughs) You are just refunding the money, if you like, which uh, was uh, allegedly ill-gotten gains. Could you say that the noose is tightening under or around Najib? Or is that too early? I think there have been several uh, commentaries already coming out. For instance, uh, the uh, Asia Centre director at the University of Tasmania, um, Professor James Chin, has already written a sort of obituary for the Prime Minister recently, I think last week, in a commentary where he said that the Malaysian Prime Minister is a dead man walking, at least politically. The situation seems quite untenable for a leader of a country to be besmirched by so many of these allegations. At this stage, uh, this uh, kleptocracy investigation by the US uh, DOJ ranks as the world's largest. I mean, uh, this outranks... Suharto, Marcos, all the other so-called dictators uh, in terms of the public scale of the scandal. So how a leader like this can go forward, at least on an international uh, scale, is uh, very questionable. However, Prime Minister Najib seems uh, very secure, at least within his own party, at least um, uh, his party solidly backs and supports him through this, and uh, the cabinet, his ministers, all seem to be, uh, at least in unison, backing him as well. Like, speaking to, uh, for instance, the opposition leader, uh, the Malaysia's opposition leader, Dr. Wan Aziza, who is uh, the wife of the currently imprisoned original opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim, she was, I I think, like many Malaysians, uh, quite outraged. Uh, She called this whole scandal like the world's biggest uh, Ponzi scheme, uh, which uh, the Malaysian people, as the US uh, DOJ said, have been uh, defrauded of billions, and uh, that it was time, obviously, for the government to go, she said. 
And uh, I mean, th- this is a bit of what she, she told me um, two days ago. What is the next step? I mean, what, what can you do? Seems very secure. Of course, uh, we live the country. Probably he will use laws, and he has just passed the latest law, the National Council, I mean, the Security Council bill. So um, that will be, uh, it can be used, because I, as I discussed with a few people, why would he have passed the law if um, it's not to be used? I think he will use it. But there is also the wisdom of the masses. I mean, you see all throughout history that sometimes you think that the strongest and the most concrete, whatever, uh, regime collapsed for a small matter. So you never uh, lose hope. And this is why we've been in this fight and the sacrifice of Anwar Ibrahim and Linguan Linguan Ng and many others like Chen Chua and others. So I think uh, we have to bang on our hope, continue the fight, and then just have resolve to continue. Lastly, how do you intend to do this when the opposition seems to be in disarray? Well, at the moment, of course, we have had our differences. But when you look at some of the things that we've gone through, we know, and we've been through uh, some some side corners and side spots, that if we are together, we can do this. In the last election, we showed it. And now I think uh, some sense have been knocked into some of us uh, when we had the by-elections, when they had the same elections in Rawa. So I think we're seeing some sense. Uh, That was the uh, Malaysian opposition, Dr. Wan Azizas, I guess attempting to sound as positive as she can, um, despite this week seeing the introduction of uh, this new, very draconian security law, ostensibly to fight Islamic extremism, but uh, basically concentrates a huge amount of power in the office of one man, the Prime Minister, who can basically unilaterally declare uh, an emergency state. How does it differ to other national security bills in the past? This one basically has no legal recourse. If he declares, for instance, uh, an area, a national emergency area, for instance, any abuse of power, deaths in custody, any abuse of violence that is perpetrated by, say, the police or the army in these areas, uh, which will restrict and shut down basically any civil uh, society, actions, there will be no recourse uh, to any legal checks and balances. For instance, I I also spoke to Ambigas Srinivasan, who is the uh, civil society leader who was uh, leading Berse, uh, Malaysia's biggest uh, civil society democratization movement, the electoral movement called Berse. Ambiga was also the head of the Malaysian legal uh, fraternity, the Bar Council, and she was the uh, boss of that. And uh, she was talking to me about the huge institutional damage, I guess, that has uh, been presided over by the current prime minister and uh, the implications of uh, this National Security Council law as well, uh, as you can hear here. Uh, they have already compromised the independence of the Attorney General's chambers of the MACC now, with the recent uh, appointment, anti-corruption agency, the MACC. Uh, Then, of course, they're going after the Bar Council. Um, And that's particularly (laughs) something very close to my heart. Um, So because they they don't like the fact that the the Bar is independent, we we just say it like it is, and and they think it's anti-government. 
So what they're doing is they're shutting down institutions one by one. So how long are we going to wait? This is my question. How long is this government going to wait before... And, and let me tell you something else. With the National Security Council Act coming into force on Monday, he will be all-powerful, which is precisely why I don't understand those ministers. Why would you give away all, even your powers, to one man? I have never understood why they have done that. So not only have they compromised our position, they've even compromised their own. Why is it Malaysia needs such a draconian piece of legislation as compared with other countries who have worse problems of terrorism, of, of threats of terrorism? So this legislation is far worse than what they have. So how do you justify that? Which is why, and, and when you read it, and as I say, as a lawyer reading it, you can immediately see what the purpose is. It's to give one man absolute power. Which is why we, we and which is why we say it's going to make him a dictator. International condemnation of this bill. Yes, there has been already. Um, for instance, uh, the Human Rights Watch, the uh, international human rights NGO, has already condemned the National Security Council Act and said it should be repealed because the government threatens basically to abuse these laws, to suppress and uh, make worse and. Um, Malaysia's already a very poor human rights record under this government. As uh, Phil Robertson, the Deputy Asia Director, has said, um, given the Malaysian government's recent track record of harassing and arresting government critics, um, the likely abuses under this sweeping new law are truly frightening. And these are powers that were used by Marcos and Sahato in recent decades. I don't know whether there's an exact equivalence to the Indonesian and Philippines uh, experience. Well, simil similar. I think they're quite similar. In effect, what this law enables the Prime Minister and his office to do is to mount a coup against the Parliament, against Malaysian democracy, because basically he can suspend Parliament, declare any area of Malaysia an emergency area. There is no other law in force except the one run out of Prime Minister's office and headed by the Prime Minister himself uh, and a committee that is appointed by him. Are people like openly saying that? Yes, I mean, it, it, it's all there. And uh, the legal fraternity under the Malaysian Bar Council have uh, also condemned this law and said it's quite unnecessary. And, you know, the law basically protects the security forces from any legal proceedings for any actions that they take in so-called good faith. It imposes, for instance, a sweeping obligation of secrecy on all those involved with this council, and it does away with inquests for deaths or of anyone killed in the security area. This widely criticized law you know, can come into force uh, even without the assent of um, Malaysia's traditional uh, hereditary rulers who are uh, in the council rulers of the sultans who are the traditional rulers of this country, basically uh, had called for a revision of these laws and the provisions, but the government passed it anyway. They ignored even the hereditary rulers and Malaysian NGOs like human rights groups and lawyers and uh, Bursay, the democratization movement, Amnesty International have all called for this law to be revised. What about human rights groups? The members of Bursay 
are they going underground or are they still out there? Oh, they're still out there. And in fact, there is uh, talk now and uh, much discussion raised about uh, mounting uh, what is uh, dubbed a Bursay 5, which will be the fifth mass gathering, mass demonstration. The first four drew successively huge crowds onto the streets of Kuala Lumpur. Um, the last one drew upwards of half a million people people onto the streets. But of course, the uh, police chief and other security chiefs have already come out to condemn, per se, for uh, what they consider the illegal street protests. The police chief has already come out to threaten, per se, and anyone else who is thinking of such street protests with using this brand new law and threatening to declare an emergency area and basically lock everybody up for what they consider an illegal act of trying to topple the government through uh, means other than through parliament. Yet, of course, as we know with this emergency act, uh, parliament can be suspended anyway. The big discussion and meeting that was had with Bursay's uh, steering committee in Malaysia did happen over the weekend, and they resolved that uh, there will be a Bursay number no. 5 mass rally but where and when and how it's to be done has not been announced. Is there increasing fear that social media might be targeted as well? There are manifestations of that online censorship already. As you know, uh, earlier this year, uh, one of Malaysia's top two news sites, the Malaysian Insider, was effectively closed down by government barring it and then uh, censoring it. There are a lot of people uh, being hauled up by the Multimedia Communications Authority for allegedly slandering the Prime Minister online. Uh, the most recent case was uh, uh, an opposition leader who has been prosecuting this whole issue of the billions missing linked to the 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, this opposition leader, Tony Poir, I think was... Uh, hold up and has been named to be investigated by the Multimedia Authority for um, allegedly linking the Prime Minister to um, the top official uh, detailed in the American complaint. So this opposition was a leader was uh, threatened yesterday, I think, with further investigations for uh, an online Facebook posting about this issue. Mahathir, the former Prime Minister, has been very outspoken about Najib. How's he faring at the moment? He continues to be, you know, the de facto leader pushing for the removal of the Prime Minister over these allegations. I think what most Malaysians, uh, at least uh, in Kuala Lumpur and those active in the democratization movement are finding is that it's remarkable that a 91-year-old who in many ways was responsible for the institutional damage that Malaysians uh, are now uh, facing has returned to try maybe to retrieve the situation, leading you know, the opposition to the current prime minister. But I think a lot of people are also realistic that uh, you can't expect a former prime minister and a 90-plus-year-old um, to uh, helm a movement that is required to uh, remove a prime minister that seems very secure at the moment. 
Finally, the very near future, what are you expecting in the coming weeks? A lot of people here in Kuala Lumpur, I think, are expecting a lot more uh, different types of repression. Certainly some more prosecution using the legal system, the courts and the police to clamp down on critics of the Prime Minister over this uh, scandal which refuses to go away. There may be more online censorship and uh, harassment uh, using the laws. And of course, um, the one huge uncertainty now is uh, this week over the introduction, uh, the, the, the new National Security Council Act law, which we've spoken about, which uh, gives the Prime Minister these new sweeping powers. I think uh, we can revisit this some more as the weeks roll on, because okay. uh, I think everyone's very tentative and a little worried right now as to where this is going to go. The American Department of Justice uh, complaint, I, I guess, has uh, you know given a huge substantial boost to the criticism about the Prime Minister and the alleged billions of dollars that have gone missing or unaccounted for. And I can only apologise for the glitch at the beginning of that interview. I'm not still not quite sure what happened, but I was able to replay it. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Keon Wong, who's in Kuala Lumpur at this very moment. There is no doubt that for Morocco, the Western Sahara issue remains a central factor in relations with the international world. And the main reason is obvious. Morocco continues to defy the UN and the Criminal Court of Justice and much of the international community in its continued occupation of Western Sahara. Morocco has illegally occupied the former Spanish colony for more than 40 years. And despite promising to hold an internationally supervised referendum on the fate of the territory, has strengthened its grip. I'm speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And Kate, an open letter to the UN Security Council titled The Status Quo in Western Sahara is Unacceptable to Continue coincided with a meeting of the Council on the 26th of July. Who signed the letter and what was the contents? Letter from over 50 NGOs, different organisations, including the British Parliamentary Friends of Western Sahara. The Australia Western Sahara Association signed it, among all these others from around the world. They were pressing the Security Council really to forge ahead with a solution because the status quo is unacceptable. It's just as bad in a completely, in one way, being a refugee for over 40 years now in the very harsh desert in southwest Algeria. But it's unacceptable in a completely different way for the Sahrawis who are living under a harsh occupation. Uh, occupation is a word that does describe what Morocco is doing, although they like to pretend it's part of their country and the pretense is so strong that they actually made a diplomatic incident when the United Nations Secretary General referred to the occupation. 
what happened was that they then withdrew practically all the staff from the United Nations mission in the territory called Minerso as a protest. And they said they didn't mind it monitoring the ceasefire, but they didn't think it had a political job to do, although its name is the mission for organising a referendum of self-determination for the Sahrawi people. So that's been going on, and that provoked a kind of crisis. And just recently, uh, a few weeks ago, they said that they would allow 25 members of staff to return. Out of how many? The whole component is in the hundreds uh, over there, but the number that were actually expelled was around about 80-something. Some of them had been operating from Las Palmas in the Canary Islands, which is a very short distance across the water from El Ayun, the capital of Western Sahara. Some of them had gone home, and, and so I'm not quite sure which are the ones who've gone back. We're just waiting for the rest to become fully functional. And who's the bugbear in the UN Security Council that's holding us up? I mean, Morocco has a number of friends around the place, not as many as it would like to think, really, but luckily for them, they have a very staunch ally in France who is a permanent member of the Security Council and is therefore able to veto anything. Uh, There's no simple majority decision taken if it's a case of veto. Why France? They weren't the occupying territory, the colonial power, were they? That's true. It was a Spanish colony. Uh, Spain is nevertheless still a friend of Morocco, I'm sad to say. You'd think that they might have been more responsible towards their former colony, but it was their failure to carry out this vote of self-determination before they left the territory that has actually allowed Morocco to become the occupier. So, yes, Spain is another friend and it actually is a member of the Security Council right now. Yes, France is the, the, the staunch ally that's always their permanent member. The whole of Africa really divides into Anglophone Africa and Francophone Africa. It's the West Coast that is predominantly French. Somebody once said that the route of the Paris-Dakar car rally represented the diplomatic ideal for France to have a clear run right down the West Coast. When the rally actually used that route, there was uh, frequently a dispute about where it would go when it got to Western Sahara because Morocco was very friendly to the rally and they, as I say, have this rhetoric that pretends that it's part of their territory but it actually wasn't politically permissible for them to let the rally go through there. So they had to make a safe passage through the military wall that divides their part from the Sahrawi part. Then they would have to cross in Sahrawi territory and one year that wasn't agreed with the Sahrawi authorities and there really was a nearly uh, resumption of war about it. But that whole uh, ambition to have control over the west coast of Africa is, I suppose, what their colonial enterprise was all about. And they did have all the countries that had Algeria and Mauritania 
the relationship with Morocco was that they never had a... It wasn't actually a colony, it was a protectorate, but it was under French influence. They still like to maintain that, and there's a, still a very strong uh, relationship between France and Morocco. A lot of the French diplom uh, politicians have property there. That's where they go for their holidays. If the uh, king of Morocco wants to curry favour with any politicians, they get invited to a lovely holiday in a luxury hotel or sort of villa and uh, and treated to uh, all kinds of treats to, um, to persuade them to, persuade, to, to do what Morocco wants. So the, it's uh, quite hard for France to do anything Morocco makes it, keeps working on making it very hard for France to do anything that's against Morocco's will. But still, it's the only country now, Western Sahara, that's not free in Africa, isn't it? Well, yes, and this is coming to a head now with a new move by Mor Morocco to try and get back into the Africa Union. The African Union was established in 2001 and uh, actually launched in 2002 and it replaced the organisation of African unity. At a particular point in 1984, it admitted the Sahrawi Republic as a full-blown member, and Morocco was extremely angry, and they walked out. Every now and again, they've come out of their sulky corner and asked to come back in again. Then it turns out that their condition for coming back in is that uh, Western Sahara will leave. Everybody says, no, you can't do that. So it goes on. Well, they haven't made it one of these pleas for a while. And in the interim, about 2005 or something like that, the organisation changed into the AU, the African Union. Western Sahara was then a founder member of that new uh, transformed organisation. The president of Western Sahara acted as the vice president of the African Union. So they've had a really strong relationship with the new organisation and it was as a result of that that South Africa recognised the Sahara Republic formally because they said it was anomalous to have the vice president of the Africa Union presiding over the, the uh, meeting without a f full embassy in South Africa. That made uh, poor Morocco even more angry. I shouldn't say poor Morocco because I'm not really sorry for them. And now they've, uh, they've come back again with a new request. And at first it was being billed as joining without preconditions. We thought, well, that sounds very promising. Maybe there is going to be a change in atmosphere after this Minoso hiccup and maybe this is something that they have agreed to do as a kind of peace-building uh, gesture. But very soon it became clear that, oh no, it's the same old game. They're still trying to get Western Sahara to leave before they join. Interesting issue is the US pressure to relocate the US Africa Command. What do you know about the US Africa Command? Well, I have to confess, not a lot. And that's to Morocco. It's in Germany at the moment. It's in Germany at the moment, and it would be strategically very useful for them, they think, to have a base 
in Africa, particularly the North Africa where there's a lot of terrorist activity uh, going on uh, in their view. Uh, there are th these organizations, a kind of Al-Qaeda of, uh, of the North Africa, does things like kidnapping tourists and they were involved in the Mali uprising and there have been um, a number of foreign uh, businesses that have had kidnappings and as well, so hostage-taking. So I suppose they would like to be able to keep an eye on all of that more closely. Impact on Western Sahara, because the US is not a terribly friendly toward Western Sahara? Likes to pretend it's completely neutral, but behind the veil of neutrality, generally speaking, they are favourable to Morocco and there are some ties that are very close and unfortunately for Western Sahara there's a particularly close family link between the Clinton family and Morocco. So they've also had been one of these uh, overseas dignitaries that have been treated to lovely holidays, etc. Nevertheless, enough people in the United States who stand up for democracy and justice and international law, for it to not be a completely easygoing for the Americans, which I think is why they, as I say, like to have a neutral persona. And then there's the ongoing trade issues of Morocco selling Western Sahara resources to other countries. Yes, that's another issue that is quite current at the moment because it's being considered in the European Court of Justice. There's been two different legal actions going on. One was the Polisario Front itself challenged their right for the, of the EU to conclude a trade pact with Morocco that, include, that didn't exclude goods coming from Western Sahara. For the time being, one particular treaty for in agricultural products and fishery products was uh, suspended, or was annulled actually, and then the EU appealed. The appeal is in the process of going through now, but a legal friend of mine says that She's looked at it quite closely and she doesn't think that they will be able to make a case to reverse that annulment. So that's quite an interesting situation. The other one was a case brought in the United Kingdom against, uh, again, the same thing of its right to import products from Western Sahara sold as product of Morocco. The court in the UK referred that to the European Court. That is, at the moment, um, going to be heard there. So that's a, another, another court case where it's a different form of resistance and activism to actually take things to court, but it seems to be making more headway than the other avenues that have been unsuccessful for very many years. So could the issue of Western Sahara's phosphate being sold here in Australia become a court case one day? Could be something that would be done. 
So we're watching this with great interest to see what happens. Finally, Kate, we talked about this last time, the film festival that's happening in October, and there's an invitation out there for people to join in. Yes, exactly. It's a website is called Fisahara. That's the name of the festival, like Film Sahara, F-I-S-A-H-A-R-A dot E-S for Spain. Uh, although it's a Spanish site, when you go there, you will see that there is an English option ver- a version of the website. And it costs as only 750 euros to attend the festival from Madrid. You have to, of course, get yourself to Madrid. But from Madrid, uh, for the course of the festival, you can travel there, uh, stay with a family and attend all the festival uh, functions, which I think is extremely good value. And that's October? And that's in October. There's one other um, ray of hope on the horizon. I've heard that the, there is to be a real retrial of the group of prisoners, of Sahrawi prisoners, known as the Gedeim Izik group. They were arrested following a mass protest in the desert in 2010. They were tried in a military court. The military court has since been disbanded, or at least its function to try civilians in this way has been discontinued. There has been a successful uh, plea then for the prisoners to be retried in a civil court. Uh, everybody's been calling for that, all the human rights groups. And that, I believe it will happen. I don't know any details. And I do know that the prisoners and the supporters of the political activists, uh, Sahrawi political activists and human rights activists, believe that they should be released until the retrial takes place. But at the moment, there's no sign of them being released. But still, it's, it's, it is a hopeful sign that they will have at least to have a retrial. And the ridiculous sentences that were inflicted on them, ranging from 20 years till life, of which they've already now served, what, at least uh, six years, that they will uh, be given, uh, given uh, a more lenient sentence or possibly released as a result of the retrial. And that was Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association, and you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio, 3CR. Human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy attended the International Conference for People's Rights in the Philippines over the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of July in Davao City, Mindanao. The conference, organised in cooperation with the International League of People's Struggles and Bayan, the new Patriotic Alliance, was a gathering of human rights organisations and social movements in different parts of the world. Today, Peter will be talking about the achievements of that conference in this interview and also a focus on the new president. A couple of weeks ago, Peter outlined his acceptance speech and then on 25th of July, his first State of the Nation address, which lasted one hour and 33 minutes. But first, Peter, let's talk about the conference. Uh, This conference is about human rights in the Philippines as an international concern. 
that's the second such event. The first one was in July 2013 during the presidency of uh, Benigno Aquino III. It was held this year in Davao City in, in Mindanao, the Philippines, to draw even sharper focus on the fairly brutal human rights situation in Mindanao. Why does an international conference have to come to the Philippines and, and talk about human rights in that country? The situation has been one of really sustained gross abuse of human rights at the individual political level and also in a collective sense or a social sense for a long time. I would say that the level of concern took off in 2001 when Gloria Arroyo became the president and it really just kept on expanding as a matter of urgent concern until her presidency finished in 2010. And there was a real hope that the new president, Aquino, would be a bit like his mother and father and uh, opt for uh, social justice and an end to repression and so on. But that didn't happen. In, in fact, uh, the level of political murders, the suppression of living standards and uh, people's rights to uh, assert themselves you know, collectively, either in the workplace or in the community, that, that continued uh, to be you know, matters of really grave concern. The terrible height of political killings in the Philippines was around 2006, 2007, and it did abate under international pressure on uh, Gloria Arroyo from 2007, but it didn't end. There's been some really terrible things happened since then. The Maguindanao massacre of uh, people in 2009, there was over 60 people killed in one incident. Uh, it was very, very brutal in, in, in the Mindanao area. And even early last year, there was a, a really crazy military or police operation in, in another part of Mindanao and something like 60 people were killed in, in two days there. And this, the necessity is that the Philippines, under the sort of umbrella of you know, US patronage, doesn't get scrutinised and yet its uh, political leaders can go to international conferences, behave as if they're normal, be accepted as if they're uh, a legitimate type of political representative, while at home it's carnage. So this is an effort by the International Human Rights Network to demand an end to the impunity, to demand real pressure be placed on the government in the Philippines to change for the better. Just put a face on some of the people that come to a, a large conference like this. The strongest presence came from church people from the United States and Canada, to some extent from uh, Hong Kong. Union people, uh, lawyers would be the next biggest group you could identify. And there was a, a large number of young Philippine-Americans, like in their early 20s, who are trying to uh, connect to their origin and take a stand for people's rights. Yeah, it's, it's a range, but I would say church, legal, trade union and uh, other human rights advocates. Are there any attempts to disrupt a conference like this? No, this, this was fine. In 2013, there were several incidents of um, undercover police trying to photograph people and so on, which were it's a little bit disruptive, but not much. This year, because of the election of President Duterte, there was a different kind of atmosphere, and there, there was no apparent incident you know, of uh, disturbance or threat or anything like that happening to the conference. What was on the agenda, Peter? On the 22nd of July, a Friday, uh, we had a, a, a day of organising the, the actual organisation. It's called the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. 
So it was a, a general assembly of its membership, reports on its work in the last three years and elections of its officers and so on. As a part of the program, it was about 50% larger than, than in 2013. So there was some sense of growth and uh, satisfaction uh, in its work, especially uh, its uh, campaign to hold an international people's tribunal in Washington, D.C. last July to again uh, really focus on the human rights issues in the Philippines. And subsequent to that, you know, human rights abuses in Mindanao escalated and there was quite a lot of campaign work done around the world protesting at the killing of Indigenous people's leaders in Mindanao and the either the burning of the schools they had built or the occupation of the schools by military forces. There was a good bit of work to review for the coalition itself. And then on the 23rd and 24th, which was the weekend, this two-day conference took, took place, more on bigger themes, but, but again, the focus, of course, being on the Philippines. It was the 40th anniversary of an event called the Algiers Declaration on People's Rights, which... Uh, uh, was an event in 1976 to establish, or no, quite the, the right word, but there used to be the Bertrand Russell Peace Tribunal, and uh, uh, an Italian human rights lawyer picked that up and held this conference to launch a permanent people's tribunal to organise financing for it as well. So that was a very important event because the Permanent People's Tribunal has been a significant help to people all around the world trying to deal with very, very difficult uh, repressive situations. And it's twice uh, held hearings about the Philippines. So this was a sort of Filipino acknowledgement of the importance of the Permanent People's Tribunal. And then the talks were all about you know, the peace process opportunities now opening up uh, with the new presidency review of, of the human rights situation around the world from with different speakers from Africa and uh, Latin America um, but again the, you know they focus mostly on the Philippines younger people who took part in it had already all of us did about a four-day exposure visit or a fact-finding mission or an international solidarity mission to different locations in the Philippines and so all of these people uh, got to got to express uh, what they had witnessed and uh, what they thought were priorities for action on human rights in the Philippines. Yeah, it was it was fairly packed, uh, high pressure uh, weekend. The, the fact that we were in Mindanao meant that we were able to to interact a lot with uh, indigenous people. They call themselves Lumads see videos and hear them talking about what, what they had been doing in terms of building up their communities, especially developing education services in their communities where the government had neglected that for, for many decades, and then the coping, coping with the military interventions it seemed primarily aimed at smashing their school initiative and, and in, in, in truth trying to smash their community strength. What is it about Mindanao that most of the violence happens there? The Philippines as a whole is well endowed with mineral resources and uh, other, other important uh, resources in terms of forestry and fisheries. And Mindanao is relatively like the frontier, even in the Philippines terms. It's a big island uh, with not that many people compared to, say, Luzon. It's a strange atmosphere of a bit of the Wild West, quite frankly, the indigenous people had retreated from the coastal areas to the mountains, you know, long ago, uh, 
in the Spanish time and then the American time, but now their lands are being penetrated uh, for logging in the last, say, 30 years, and then now the mining companies coming. The military and paramilitary violence is really associated with the uh, penetration of mining companies. You mentioned the Solidarity Missions. Where did you go? I went to an area in western Mindanao in the province of Zamboanga, Sibugai. It's uh, named after a river in that area. Zamboanga in general is a bit notorious for the Moro conflict and also for the Abu Sayyaf presence. And uh, there's you know, been some uh, quite strong military clashes over the last decade or so with uh, either the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in the Philippines Army or the Moro National Liberation Front in the Philippines Army. So it's a troubled area. The focus of our visit was a a mining exploration area in a mountain, mountainous region uh, of indigenous people called Subanan people. So I was very shocked because even though there's no open cut mine or anything happening uh, like that, in the last three years as this uh, Canadian mining company called uh, Toronto Ventures Incorporated has been exploring, uh, the local people uh, reported over 110 people had been killed. So we we got to interview some of the um, people who had been forced to evacuate from the area of the mining exploration and hear what had happened to them. Their own personal stories were pretty graphic, but uh, at least they were alive. But it's apparent that the mining company there, with the blessing of the national government and the provincial government, had um, really been able to have a sort of shoot-to-kill sort of regime imposed on its exploration area and it's demolished all the dwellings inside the exploration area where people had been living for a long, long time. We really touched on, briefly, for our few days there, a traumatised community, a kind of massive human rights atrocity which is, is pretty well being kept under wraps and no-one really knows about it. Even, even Filipinos that I, I told about it in Davao City were a bit astonished. And, of course, we, we visitors were astonished and we really did press uh, the local human rights documenters is it really true? You know, did, did 110 people get killed here in just these, these three years? They were sort of uh, humble. They said, look, it's actually more than that, but we cannot really enter the area safely, and the people who are witnesses feel so frightened that they cannot really, uh, you know, write a, a swear out an affidavit. So it's a work in progress, really, to document what's happened. But even those little stories which we heard from four different families, me personally, uh, these people were fired upon not to kill but to intimidate them, uh, fired upon with uh, M14s or M16 weapons by paramilitary and security guards of the company. And uh, the paramilitary is, is a unit organised by the armed forces of the Philippines. They were fired on uh, around their feet. Also, they were carrying uh, oil and other equipment for small-scale mining, which is a traditional practice in that area, and the equipment on their backs was hit with bullets. So <laughs> it's enough to scare anyone. That's their stories, and I think it's possible to believe that other people have just been shot. Did you hear similar stories from the people who went on the other missions? No one had a a story quite as graphic as ours, but several larger groups, I think there was probably about 25 in, in, in my group, but there were groups of up to 60 and 70 who went to some of the LUMAD school uh, areas. 
north of Davao City and uh, they were basically visiting people in evacuation centres. They couldn't visit them you know, where their, their ancestral lands were because those were occupied by military forces. They you know, heard people recounting very, very terrible events, events where, say, three people were executed or five people were shot, not 110 people killed for a couple of years. You know, I think the scale of what I was touching on was quite quite horrific. But the character of, you know, the human rights problems or abuses of a terrifying character, you know, the quality, these things had been done to absolutely terrorise communities and uh, either to force them to leave permanently or to make them surrender, collapse, you know, break down and just do what they're told. How can an international coalition for human rights like yours act on these instances and support the people? In the uh, event that was organised in Washington, D.C. last year, we, we were able to have uh, formal legal type of hearings where people gave evidence on oath and details were able to be documented very well of some of these incidents. And therefore we were able to prepare the ground for eventual real prosecution of some people. It's something we would, we would try to achieve under the current new government of the Philippines. There seems to be an opportunity to press for that sort of thing. Uh, and also there's a possibility that another jurisdiction somewhere in the world who's got universal jurisdiction in their legal system could arrest a person travelling through their territory and hold a trial based on some of the evidence we've been able to collect. That's one level of, a, of the action you can do. That's a form of restraint on the military forces that have to think about that sort of thing possibly happening to them in, when they go ahead with these kinds of terrible operations. Um, but at the political level, if we can have really significant bodies of like national councils of churches, you know, national lawyers, guilds, international commission of jurists and other similar bodies of standing uh, take up these issues. We can get them exposed more thoroughly at the United Nations level. Then we can have, you know, what in a way what happened to Gloria Arroyo in 2007. She, she went to on a tour of countries in, in Europe. She had two governments, the Netherlands and Denmark, refused to allow her to enter their territory because they would not tolerate the level of political killings going on under her government. So you know, we, we need to change the international public's perception of the Philippines and we think we can do that by persisting with this kind of work. And once public opinion changes, then political action is more possible and therefore change is possible. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, who recently returned from a visit to the Philippines. But surely there must be an emphasis on the, the multinational mining companies who are employing the mercenaries and paramilitaries to kill the people. Yeah, there's multiple actors involved in this. And so one, one significant component of the effort is to focus on the mining industry. You know, from an Australian point of view, you know, we, we've been very concerned about project for a huge, the biggest ever copper and gold mine at a place called Tampakan, south of Davao City, high in the mountains. Um, it'd be like Octeti or something like that in its uh, environmental impact. And there have been people killed around that area 
over the last few years because they've opposed the mine idea. And yeah, we have campaigned on that. And currently the, that operation was by, going to be done by Glencore. It's a Swiss company, but its operation were based in Brisbane. So, yeah, it's been campaigning on that. And Glencore, its operation at Tampakan was ordered to be stopped by the new government uh, in the Philippines a few weeks ago. <laughs> so it's a continually moving uh, situation. But you're right that uh, a focus on, on the mining company can have an, have an impact. Although um, um, I think with Glencore, it's, it's such a monster um, and it's such a sort of inhuman in its, its policies. It's hard to know exactly what ha happened to them. But it's a relief to the people around Tampakan that the project is off, for, at least for now. And we know that BHP and Rio Tinto have got explorations and some, some sort of subcontracted operations in, in the Philippines, in Mindanao. Uh, so that's a, a matter of monitoring them. And these Canadian people who are in the mission with me, you know, they're very much alert to TVI. It's, it's, it's had other mining operations in Mindanao, which are also notorious. And so they're, they're engaged in, in Canada in trying to build up pressure on TVI. And I think, again, you've got a better, apparently, a better, a more open-minded Canadian government with Justin Trudeau's more information. We could make some more impact through that channel, as you suggest. Also the importance of supporting human rights defenders. Here was one issue, issue where we had some good news. I think people in the international community would just either laugh or cry or both, you know, when they hear about what happens to the human rights advocates themselves. So there's a, there's a national human rights network in the Philippines called Karapatan. That's a Tagalog word, which means rights. You know, so in, in every province they try to have a team that's capable of, you know, a methodical uh, documentation of any reported incidents. For many years now, probably it's since, certainly since Gloria Arroyo's time, the government uh, has created its own quasi-legal team. It's basically intelligence and military officers. They're not part of any DPP or anything like that. They somehow or other get to uh, lay charges against the human rights advocates. It's really routine now. If I meet somebody from Karapatan, I will ask them, oh, what charges have you got against you? And they'll say, oh, I've been charged with multiple murder, kidnapping, firearms, <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. Just recently, uh, because of these LUMAD communities and their schools being attacked and people having to evacuate, in the last year, people, you know, will will walk, uh, you know, 100 kilometres to find uh, shelter in a church compound. In, in Davao City, there's a church compound was just around the corner from where we held the conference. Uh, there's 700 people there still after uh, more than a year. But the people who helped them go to that compound were all charged. There were 15 of them, all charged with kidnapping you know, abuse of, of children's rights because there were children in the evacuees, of course. You know, they faced arrest and, and all of that. But, but um, just before I went to the Philippines, we had a you know, strong protest about the charges being laid against these people, which included, you know, the leader of the Karapatan, the national leader of Karapatan, uh, bishops, priests, lawyers, doctors, they were all charged. The charges were dropped by a court just, I think, on the... 20th of July, just just in the middle of our program. There was a sort of sense that, uh, oh, well, here's something good that's happened under Duterte's presidency. Uh, it could be that it reflected a shift of the political climate. 
But of course the charges were totally absurd and they should never have ever been entertained by any, any genuine you know, judicial officer. This is the sort of dimension that uh, I suppose lawyers themselves would be more aghast at you know, and realise you know, really the Philippines is, is a basket case for due process, basic rights, respect for the law. It's, it's a basket case. And it's really urgent that the international community put pressure on the government in the Philippines in, in all different ways to change this for the better. What role did Duterte have as the mayor of Davao City in all of this over those years? Many, many years he was the mayor, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. For decades he's been the mayor or some other similar city official. You know, Davao is a municipal area. It's a big one. So Davao City is part of Davao del Sur province. Uh, so he wasn't the governor. But Davao City includes rural areas as well as the urban areas. And it's a you know, significant population centre in the Philippines. The thing about Duterte's legacy there is that he he was a you know a very activist political figure, and his focus was on defusing conflicts, avoiding at all if at all possible any violent clashes. He actively negotiated between different political forces, including the New People's Army, the MILF, uh, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and you know the warlords. <laughs> That is the really rich families who have their own private armies. His Davao had a reputation for peace, less abuse, less uh, poverty, um, more effective social services like the hospitals, the schools, and the uh, even the ambulance and the fire brigade actually working. He he actually comes through as a, a distinctively uh, different type of political figure in the Philippines. And now he's the president, and a couple of weeks ago we heard his acceptance speech and a couple of days after your conference he had the State of the Nation address. Yeah. I believe that it took him an hour and 33 minutes. What did he have to say that took up all that time? There is probably no normal but generally in the past the previous presidents have gone on and on and he, he was trying to make a point that uh, he would only go for 30 minutes or 38 minutes or something like that as a sort of mark of being different less ostentatious and self-indulgent etc and apparently he just uh, stopped looking at his teleprompter after about half an hour and uh, as a result he went on for another hour i, I didn't get to listen to the speech um, but I, I saw the media coverage afterwards in in manila he obviously went on and on and on about the uh, campaign against drug dealers drug abuse the problems caused in society by drugs and corruption and, and he sort of lost his way, unfortunately. So there you go. I think we got uh, a bit of a spontaneous exposure, you know, of the the real president. So he's a, he's a mixed bag. He's a complicated person. He is given to spontaneity, uh, impulses. That must make everyone a little bit worried. But on the other hand, most of his uh, impulses are, are in the in the direction of uh, fairness. You know, tell the truth take action, don't uh, con people with nonsense and uh, diversions, you know, deal with the real issues. So he's, he, he's sort of in the right direction, but uh, it's a little bit unpredictable, even for those people who've got their hopes in him as a sort of vehicle for positive change. There's a lot of um, underlying concern or worry. And at the political level, uh, I discovered that, you know, even though he sort of built his career in, in Davao, you know, his father 
was a governor of a province in Cebu, and uh, his father was a member of uh, Marcos's cabinet. So he was sort of associated really with the martial law era. And because of that, uh, Rodrigo Duterte grew up with uh, the young Marcos, uh, Ferdinand Jr. Uh, so he, he, he actually is a friend of Bongbong Marcos, who, who almost won the election for vice president. It's another set of relationships which is really different from you know, that image of him being open, uh, friendly and positive towards the communist insurgency or the Moro insurgency and so on. How, how does this new president put all that together, and not on the, the relatively small stage of Davao City, but the, the big stage of the national presidency? So it's, it's a lot of imponderables there, and um, it's uh, e- events in this last week have uh, already shown, you know, it's going to be a pretty wild ride, I think. Elephant in the room, the US? We have to talk about the, the way the United States is likely to respond to Duterte's election. He's not their their favoured candidate by any means. They haven't uh, shown any overt, you know, nastiness yet. But if you look at the international media coverage, it's it's uh, 100% negative on Duterte, mm-hmm. which isn't really correct given given what's been going on in Davao and what's needed to happen and, and what he's actually saying to some extent in in, in the Philippines now. I would think that uh, the U.S. is already trying to prepare the uh, international opinion for the demise of Duterte as, as soon as possible, but it might take, you know, in a political strategy sense, you know, quite a, you know, six months, one year, something like that for for such a strategy to unfold. But Duterte does not agree with the U.S. showdown with China over the South China Sea. He doesn't want the Philippines to be the battlefield or cannon fodder for that clash. And he doesn't want, you know, five U.S. military bases in uh, in the Philippines. Four, four of them are scheduled to be in Mindanao. His, his positive attitude towards coming to some kind of peace agreement with the communist insurgency and with the Moro uh, people is also uh, something that the U.S. will really, really not like. And uh, I think they'll do their best undo or undermine. So there's this multiple levels at which you know he's going to be jostling or coming up against U.S. Uh, uh, intransigence, I suppose. Is there anything else that you'd like to say, Peter? Well, on the uh, State of the Nation address, it was really obvious that you know, he lost his way with his speech, but uh, he he didn't mention one once his commitments to the workers or the farmers. So that is the ending of contractualised labour, which is a way to stop trade unionism and suppress wages, he didn't mention it. He didn't mention the need to increase the national minimum wage, and he didn't mention agrarian reform, which, you know, millions millions of Filipinos were hanging out for him to come across and and recommit because he'd he'd made those promises during the elections. And and I think at his inauguration as well, there there was a sort of... disappointment in that speech but in the speech he also made a unilateral declaration of a ceasefire in the war with the um, new people's army effective immediately so that was really welcomed you know so but that say from my point of view the trade union movement in the philippines gave him five out of ten for the speech so that was a sort of criticism really but since then there's been clashes where the the military have massacred another lumad family um, they killed one and, and, and wounded five 
in one family about three days ago. And then on the 27th or 28th of July, a New People's Army unit ambushed a, a, a military unit in, in Mindanao also, in Davao del Sur. Duterte really had a, had a temper tantrum and he, he declared the ceasefires off. Right now, everybody's scrambling. I think the, the communist side are pretty calm, trying to be calm about it. They really want the peace talks to happen. They, they really want uh, political prisoners to be released. Duterte seems to want the peace talks to happen, but he cannot, he has not been strong enough to get the military to release even some small number of political prisoners who they absolutely have no right to hold. They postponed twice the date for the peace talks to start. Now they're scheduled for August 20, so it's just not long away. And now there's no ceasefire at all. From the CPP, uh, New People's Army side, they've said to Duterte, well, why don't we stick to the August 20? And on August 20, you know, both of us will declare a ceasefire to enable the talks to commence in a good atmosphere. And the ceasefire should really have pretty strict guidelines so that, you know, military units are not moving into each other's territories so on. So this is a problem from Duterte that he's got to get his generals to really stand down. And those generals do not want to stand down. And the American military don't want them to stand down. And they can see that, probably they can see that if they stuff up the peace process that he's trying to begin, that, that will poison his presidency early in its, its term. So, you know, there's a lot of game playing happening, a lot of lives being used as cards, you know, in this game plan. One other thing to say, the, the main media coverage of Duterte is that he's, he's, a, he's in favour of vigilante killing of drug dealers, drug users, and so on. Not really true, but uh, Duterte is headstrong enough that he, he doesn't really get up and uh, say to the military and the police, you've got to stop all of this arbitrary shooting. They've been doing it for a long, long time. There's nothing quite new in this, but uh, there is definitely a big spike in, in people being killed allegedly about drugs. It's so arbitrary. It's, it's, uh, it is itself a massive human rights abuse. And, of course, you can go and kill anybody and say, oh, they were a drug dealer or they were a drug user. No investigation. It matters over. So a lot of other, other scores can be settled, including political killings can happen in this type of uh, thing. So this is a really difficult uh, thing. Our organisation is strongly against that idea that you, there should be you know, this sort of purging going on. These killings should also stop and there should be absolutely you know, due process that people have to have evidence against them, they have to be arrested, they have to have a trial and so on. These are all grist to the mill now and Duterte is a very you know, electric sort of figure. He's catching all the flashes. I think we'll see a lot of drama in the, in the next weeks and months. And that's Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist. What follows is a talk by Charandev Singh, who was talking on the sewer program last Friday evening. Singh was for many years part of the Doing Time program here at 3CR. Here's speaking with Peter Riley from the sewer program. Many of us have seen on Four Corners and following Four Corners on Monday is a daily reality. Mm. It's neither extreme 
no exceptional, no, you know, isolated. It's the nightmarish war quality of prisons in this country, and at the same time it's very present. It's also very foundational in this country. So you're seeing kind of a continuum of that foundational violence of the, the coming of the prison state in 1798 and the... Um, the imposition of multiple forms of uh, imprisoning violence against children right through the history of the, the prison colony, the prison state. Children have been um, enormously targeted in a wide range of violence and violent institutions. The, the violence that has been shown on Four Corners, finally, reminds me completely of all the CCTV I've seen and the accounts that people in prison have shared with me and families of people who've died in custody have shared with me because it is the same violence that kills people in prison. So what I saw were children fighting for their lives, but also fighting to be alive. So the fact that those children are still alive against a, a deathly lethal racist system is really extraordinary. There's nothing romantic about it. It's just a sheer will to live and a mm. sheer will to resist even as really, really young children, really armed with nothing much more than their own bodies, pack of playing cards, a bed sheet, a foam mattress, against, you know, the forces of the state, railed up against them, you know, coming at them with tear gas and dogs. The government. The, the, the first time I had anything to do with Don Dale was when a young 15-year-old, it's a contradiction, young 15, but when you talk about someone who's 15 in prison... You have to add the young in because a lot of 15-year-olds are really old. You know, I was institutionalised when I was 15 and I mm. became old very, very quickly. Mm. His name was Kumanjai Waramaba and he died in Dondale in a cell. He was mandatorily sentenced. The mob was in the streets up in Alice and as they have been this weekend, Darwin and everyone was in the street. He had long marches targeting the anti-government and that whole mandatory sentencing regime which was first introduced in Western Australia by Carmen Lawrence, right after a series of deadly police pursuits. Mm. You know, prison states deadly outside the prison gates as well. It shows in the 15 years since Kumanjai Waramaba's death how escalated the violence against young people mm. has become. But yet those young people are alive. And I just want to acknowledge that because they're alive against waves of waves of, you know, deadly violence that have been pitched against them mm. in the past and are pitched against them in the present. Those same officers that didn't care whether they were dead or alive, you know, doing things to them where they're screaming out, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You know, this cry that is now, you know, now, you know, circles the world coming out of black bodies and black mouths, I can't breathe. This stops now. No small thing that those children are fighting for their lives. Their sisters are fighting for their lives. Their mums are fighting for their lives. You know, and in so many ways all of the different types of prison struggles really um, prefigure the struggles of the street in the same way that, you know, in the in the few years before Black Lives Matter has become such a huge movement, 2014, you know, there was massive civil disobedience and extraordinary uprising in all of the supermaxes right across the United States and all of the, you know, the movements and uprisings of I Don't Know More movement in mm -hmm. Canada the year before. Just like... The, the uprising, the insurgency at Attica, you know, now almost 45 years ago, was uh, uh, both a culmination and a prefiguring of what was to come. So I think the, is the role and the centrality of prison movements 
well, I think the prisons are kind of like the lab rats. What they do there, a lot of the techniques of surveillance and repression, they then extend it outside onto street protests and then onto industrial workers when they take action, yeah, which is rarer, but so they finally experimentalise. So I thought it was interesting with the youths at the moment they've moved them out of that centre and they've moved them to the former immigration centre. So yet another supposedly separate issue, mm. yet yeah, very connected because they're moving them to the, That's right. so, to the immigration centre. Yeah, yeah those, those young people... Much, if not all, of that footage was in what we call the old Dondale, and then a massive, more than a thousand cell prison was, adult prison was built in Darwin, which was open last year, and the prison that Aboriginal adult, no, well, almost all Aboriginal adults, mm-hmm. but adults in Northern Territory were held in before in Darwin was called Berrimah Prison. Before the Berrimah Prison was the Fanny Bray Prison, yes, you know, again, yeah. you know, this whole genealogy of colonial institutional violence. But Berrima Prison, where adults were moved out of, you know, was condemned. You know, it's completely infiltrated with asbestos and care. It's a deadly atmosphere, you know, and then they move children there. The Dondale people are talking about now and asking for it to be closed or demanding it to be closed is actually the old Berrima Prison condemned for adults. So it again speaks to that intense reality and culture of punishment that we mm. preserve and perpetuate for children in this country. Not just in prison. I mean, you can you you know the the comparison needs to be made between you know the children as adults and children as children who are coming forward to the Royal Commission into mm-hmm. institutional responses to child sexual abuse. Yes, yes, you know, yes, have yes. taken fifty, sixty, seventy years coming out. Now, many of those people's lives have been spent in prison mm-hmm. and in and out of prison and institutions, mm-hmm. and only now. After many people have died and close to people's dying now, are people able to articulate the violence that they experience at the hands of you know, church and state institutions, at the hands mm. of the most senior members of clergy? And only now are they kind of fighting to be believed. And that's a very similar journey for 11-year-olds now, in whether it's in Dondale or Parkville Detention Centre or the young people who, who were in Victoria in 2013 were held in solitary confinement for 61, 63 exactly. days in, in Charlotte Australia, and Supermax. Yes. You know, it, mm. occurrence and recurrence of mm. this violence and the, the absolute centrality of the use of solitary confinement is so repetitive and so uniform. Issue of solitary confinement against children has slightly been missed in the last five days. And I understand why, because the images of hooded young people... Mm. Restrained in chairs, Of restrained young yeah. people... Mm of tear-gassed young people and, you know, all of that is very powerful. But the institution that enabled all those things, the place where all of those things happened is solitary confinement. You know, because solitary confinement is the is the uppermost weapon of any prison system. Convict days, mm. uh, you know, it was used by the British extensively against mm. anti-colonial insurgents, mm. whether in the Punjab or whether in... Um, the Andamans, whether in Singapore, whether in Kenya, you know, mm. it was used extensively in uh, wars of genocide. After the massacres, solitary confinement is, you know, the next most kind of, gen- you know, overwhelmingly genocidal weapon. Attention needs to be paid to the use of solitary confinement as a torture technique that is so enabling, so mobilising and so intensifying of all those other forms of, of violence. People die in isolation, and people who are placed in places of acute isolation, solitary confinement and segregation, they die far more, Mm -hmm. and they die far more 
when they are released from there in prison, and then they die far, at far greater rates when they are in the community. You know, solitary confinement is so corrosive to a person's capacity to remain a human being and remain alive that the, the lethal impacts of it are expanding. So that's why I was saying, you know, the, the movements, the abolitionist movements of prison always link the end of solitary confinement, the abolition of solitary confinement to the abolition of all forms of institutional violence mm. in prison and the mm. ending of violence in a community. You know, like that is the, the fundamental essence of the abolitionist project is mm. to end violence in the community, end the use of all violence, whether it's interpersonal violence or state violence or nationalistic violence or gendered violence. It is about a reconfiguration, a reshaping of the fundamental structures of a state and a society to be fundamentally anti-violent rather than pro-violent. We're in the region we're in is like 40,000 or 100,000 years old, depending whose version you take of all the things, but that society didn't have prisons and this has been enforced on people now and it's so in the psyche of people now that that's what happens and that it's normalised to have people isolated and break their spirits. It's, That's right. It's, it really is a continuation of colonialism. Mm. Yeah. That's right. No, no prisons, but an extremely lawful society, you know, where law, L-A-W law and L-O-R-E law, <laughs> was, you know, profound and as strong as concrete. They weren't institutional prisons, but they were forms of expulsion, mm. reintegration. Mm. It is so true that looking at those images, you know, on Monday and during the week, and thinking about how Aboriginal people responded to, you know, the, the first violence of the coming of the prison state. You know, Aboriginal people who were shot on the beach in Sydney Cove, Aboriginal people who were shot on the beach in what now called the Dampier Peninsula. They named it after the killers. And, and the attempts to disrupt, you know, collective violence, it's all, you know, like those first violent contacts and the first violent resistances is really the birth of abolitionism in this country and attempts to um, push back the prison nation. Uncle Ray Jackson and I, when we had spare time in Sydney, we used to go down to um, Sydney Cove and we used to have this discussion about the Gadigal nation watching the coming of ships, you know, that were to deliver, to, 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 to bring about the institution of the prison and this whole notion of collective punishment that was, was in the DNA of the prison nation, you know, against the Irish, against the Scottish, mm. against the dispossessed, against the revolutionaries that were, first, were brought. No one among the Gadigal mob could have even envisioned 228 years ago how profoundly imprisoning those institutions would be, not just in physically but mm. mentally. The, the destruction that it would, the, the genocidal type of destruction that prisons and the, the the larger, you know, the larger prison police, you know, and this week we're we're confronted with the everyday and so mm. many, so many of the mob are in such deep pain and deep anger, which will be on the streets. And that was Singh and Peter Murphy, Peter R- Riley. I apologise, Peter Riley, and that was um, part of the sewer program last. Friday evening between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Sobering to hear when it's all put out like that. Shame on everybody, I'd say. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. 
All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. And it's coming up to 6 o'clock and I'm having a week off next week so I'm not sure what will be on the program but I'm sure that it will be filled adequately for two hours between four and six next Tuesday and of course I'll be back the next week to do Tuesday home time so I'll leave you with a couple more community announcements and then it's time for Done by Law. Bye for now.